Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you listening from places like White Plains, New York, Kansas City, Missouri, Vancouver, British Columbia, Merida, Mexico, Bremen, Germany, and the village of Lewis in East Sussex, England. Thanks for being with me. And as always, follow, share, and rate the show. And if you haven't done those things yet, what are you waiting for? It only takes a minute or two, but trust me, it really helps because I bet you've already shared about 20 memes today, right? So give me some love, tell a few friends about the show, and let's bring them on board because we're just getting started here. Okay, well, today I've got another story from the history of motorsport. And, you know, there's a lot of romance wrapped up in the so-called golden age of auto racing beginning in the 1950s. And it was an incredible time for the sport. But in 1955, at the 24 Hours of Le Mans, in the span of just three seconds, the veneer of that romance was shattered. It was racing's darkest day. And that's coming up right after this. Hey everybody, Maurice Merrick here, and I want to tell you what's new at Model Citizen Diecast. First, there's the Porsche 718 Boxster and Cayman in 143rd scale. Perfect size for your desktop or your bookshelf. Or how about a Shelby GT350R prototype or a Volvo 850 Turbo Wagon, both in big 118th scale. And my listeners get 10% off when you use the code HERITAGE at checkout. Limitations apply. Just go to ModelCitizenDieCast.com and see what's new. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's Model Citizen Diecast. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. It's known as the greatest race in motorsport. Since 1923, the 24 Hours of Le Mans has tested man and machine in a round-the-clock battle of endurance. After a 10-year pause brought on by World War II, a new era began in 1949 with rapid advances in technology and performance and the emergence of exciting drivers like Juan Manuel Fangio and Sterling Moss. But the dangers of racing remained and worsened with ever-increasing speed. To really appreciate the enormous task of driving flat out around the clock and understand what makes this the greatest event in motorsport, let's take you on a lap of the Le Mans race course as it was configured from 1932 to 1955. It's a combination of close track and public road, which means it's an imperfect surface. At just under 13.5 kilometers, it's sort of shaped like the body of an anvil, if you can imagine that, minus the base. The heel of the anvil borders the town of Le Mans to the north. To the east is the face of the anvil, a six-kilometer straight lined with cottonwood trees that rush by in a blur as you run south to the village of Molsan. And just because it's a straight doesn't mean it's flat. The road rises and dips as you blast along at 175 miles an hour, and the braking point is obscured by the rise of the road. Coming out of the Mulsanne Strait, you're hard on the brakes, down to first gear, and into a sharp right-hand corner that forms the horn of the anvil. And then it's flat out again into a gradual right-hand sweep, and then hard on the brakes to dive into a 90-degree left, and that's the Indianapolis corner, the only bank section on the whole circuit. Now you're back on the throttle for a short run into a 90-degree right known as the Arnage Corner. The next stretch meanders north to a corner called Maison Blanche, or the White House. And then it's onto the pit straight, past the grandstand, and into the Dunlop Curve, under the Dunlop Bridge, sweeping right now back into the heel of the anvil, to a left-right S-curve, and then you're at Turt Rouge Corner, or Red Mound because of the color of the soil there. And then it's back onto the Molson Strait, flat out again. Did you get all that? 
Now imagine doing it for thousands of kilometers for 24 hours, working in shifts with your co-driver, mostly at wide open throttle, in blazing sun and pouring rain and dark of night. Le Mans breaks men and machines, and that's why it's the greatest auto race in history. The morning of June 11, 1955 was bright and cheerful, as a record crowd of 300,000 spectators streamed in to see their heroes. People made camp, had picnics, drank wine, and rode the Ferris wheel at the infield carnival. Directly across from the pits, in front of the grandstand, it was standing room only. But many people had brought in step stools and A-frame ladders and even small scaffolding in order to get a higher vantage point right up against the wall. Close enough, in fact, to touch the cars. One of the exciting things about Le Mans is that it's a race of many classes, small and large displacement engines, all mixing it up at once. The big cars are logically the overall winners, since whoever drives fastest and therefore furthest in those 24 hours will wear that title. And on that day, 60 cars of all types were lined up on pit row. Jaguar fielded three cars. There was 26-year-old sensation Mike Hawthorne and his co-driver Ivor Buib leading the Jaguar D-types under the direction of team manager Lofty England, a grizzled and stern veteran of motor racing. Tony Rolt and Duncan Hamilton, both war veterans, would drive together, as would factory test driver Norman Dewis and F1 driver Don Bowman. And that rounded out the Jaguar team. It was to be the 3.4-liter D-types second outing at Le Mans. In 1954, they'd challenged the Ferrari factory team's more powerful 375 with its 5-liter V12, snapping at the Ferrari's heels hour after hour in pouring rain, only to lose by just half a lap. The D-Type was compact and streamlined, with an aluminum monocoque body and Dunlop disc brakes, still considered a cutting-edge piece of kit at the time. And to stabilize the car on the Mulsanne straight, Jaguar engineer Malcolm Sayer added a single vertical fin flowing out of the driver's headrest fairing. In fact, the D-Type would reach over 190 miles an hour on the Mulsanne. The Mercedes team included Frenchman André Simone and German Carl Kling, but really it was headlined by two-time Formula One world champion Juan Manuel Fangio of Argentina. In three prior starts, Fangio had so far been denied a Le Mans finish. His co-driver was a rising star, Englishman Sterling Moss. Moss was newly signed to Mercedes, whose race director, Alfred Neubauer, had been impressed with his tenacity in driving lesser cars. Then there was also 37-year-old American John Fitch. He'd flown a P-51 Mustang in the war and had even shot down a Messerschmitt 262, the world's first operational jet fighter. And now he was driving the most advanced racing car in the world for a German manufacturer. Fitch's co-driver was Frenchman Pierre Levegue, and at 50 years of age, Levegue was an old man by racing standards. His early career had been interrupted by World War II, but he persisted at Le Mans, and he'd made a Herculean effort in 1952, driving for 23 hours straight until he had a mechanical failure. But his determination had earned the respect of Alfred Neubauer, who offered him a spot on the team. Now, Levegue had driven more kilometers at Le Mans over his career than any other driver in 1955, and he was a favorite of the home crowd, but still 50 years old. Now Mercedes had given Levegue what was probably his last chance, and in the 300 SLR no less, which was a formidable piece of engineering. 
Just a month earlier, a pair of SLRs driven by Moss and Fangio had finished first and second in the Millimilia, the legendary thousand-mile Italian road race. With Moss crossing the finish line in 10 hours and 7 minutes, smashing the previous record by half an hour. Designed by the brilliant Mercedes engineer Rudolf Uhlenhaut, the 300 SLR had a dry sump fuel-injected 300-horsepower straight 8 laid over on its side to keep the hood line low, and it had massive inboard drum brakes and super-light construction with bodywork of a magnesium alloy known as Electron over a tube-frame chassis. But easily the most dramatic feature is that, at the push of a button, the rear deck of the 300 SLR could be deployed as a speed brake. This feature would be critical to help slow the big Merc at the end of the Malsan Strait, and they thought it would give them an advantage in the rain. Then, of course, there was Scuderia Ferrari in the 735LM, a car purpose-built for Le Mans with a 4.4-liter inline 6 producing 330 horsepower. And this was a departure from their traditional smaller displacement V12s, but good enough to have set a lap record in qualifying, and it proved faster than both Jaguar and Mercedes on the Molson. And the battle was about to begin. I'll be right back with more Horsepower Heritage. Don't go away. Hi guys, Maurice Merrick here, and I want to just take a moment to tell you about Drive Toward a Cure, which is bringing cars and camaraderie together to benefit Parkinson's disease research and patient care. And let me tell you how it works. They've got local events from coast to coast like track days, road rallies, and even premium multi-day touring adventures. It's a way for members of the car community to leverage their mutual passion and help a great cause. So if you want to get involved in an event near you or even help organize an event, you can find everything you need at drivetowardacure.org or on Instagram at Drive Toward a Cure. That's drivetowardacure.org, benefiting Parkinson's disease research and patient care. The opening ceremony and fanfare ignited a fever in the crowd. Then, as the drivers took their positions along the grandstand side of the track, a dead silence fell. And at 4 p.m., the flag dropped and the drivers sprinted across the tarmac to their cars. 60 engines roared to life and the race was on. In his haste, Juan Manuel Fangio's trouser leg got caught on the gear lever of his 300 SLR and he was last off the start. Early on, the race leader was Eugenio Castellotti in his Ferrari 735LM. But before long, Castellotti was overtaken by Fangio and Hawthorne and they became locked in high-speed combat for the lead and remained so for the first two and a half hours as they traded for first and second place. But to win Le Mans, you can't just be fast. You must meet the test of reliability. So Hawthorne's strategy was to push the Mercedes team to the point of mechanical failure if he could. But it may have been deeper for Hawthorne than simply racing hard, because he was suffering from chronic renal failure and had already lost one kidney. His doctors had given him a grave prognosis, and he might only have a few years left before his other kidney failed. And this wasn't a secret. So some have speculated that this grim future may have given Hawthorne a fatalistic outlook. Anyway, he continued to dice it out with Fangio. In fact, during the first two hours of the 1955 Le Mans, Hawthorne set a new lap record. Four minutes, 6.6 .6 seconds, driving as if he was being chased by the devil himself. All the while, cars of every class were in a scrum for their own position. Triumphs, Porsches, Coopers, Panhards and others from 700 cc's and up. 
and the hour approached when the teams would be doing their first driver change and refueling. In the Jaguar pit, rookie Ivor Bueb waited his turn from Hawthorne. Likewise, in the Mercedes pit, the lanky American John Fitch was anticipating a change with Pierre Levegue, while his teammate Sterling Moss patiently watched his co-driver, the maestro, Fangio, screaming by lap after lap. On lap 35, Hawthorne overtook Pierre Levegue at the Arnage corner, with Fangio close behind. As they rocketed toward White House corner, both of them were jockeying for position. Mike Hawthorne, in his D-type, came up to the right side of the track as they approached the pit straight at 150 miles an hour. Hawthorne shot around an Austin Healey 100S driven by 35-year-old Lance Macklin, then began to apply his brakes to make it into the pit for a refueling and driver change. He'd already missed two earlier pit signals, and this might be his last chance. Exactly what happened next has been argued and debated for the last six decades. With Hawthorne just in front of him, Macklin drifted ever so slightly to the right, dipping his front right wheel onto the grass shoulder. And then he tapped his brakes and moved sharply to the left, into the path of Levegue's Mercedes, which ran up the left rear quarter of the Healy and became airborne. It cartwheeled into an earthen berm alongside the track, struck a concrete wall, and the front structure of the car disintegrated. Hurtling pieces of wreckage flew hundreds of feet, cutting a shallow arc into the crowd. The front bodywork sawed through the first few rows of spectators, all of those people on their ladders and scaffolds, and the engine tumbled along the same path. It had only taken three seconds for the thrill of speed to be wiped away by shock and anguish. Scores of men, women, and children lay dead or dying. Hawthorne came to a stop, but he'd overshot the Jaguar pit. Team manager Lofty England ordered Hawthorne back into his car to go around for another lap. If he'd reversed in the car, he'd be disqualified, and England also feared that with oncoming cars arriving amid the chaos, a pileup could be imminent. Lance Macklin's Healy veered into the left-hand wall, spun across the track toward the pits, and finally came to rest again against the grandstand wall. He scrambled from the car virtually unharmed, and by some miracle his fuel tank didn't rupture because it likely would have showered the grandstand crowd with burning gasoline, potentially causing a much larger fire and claiming even more victims. Firemen tried to save Levegue from the burning wreckage, not realizing he had been thrown violently to the tarmac and he was likely dead in the initial impact. Then they tried to extinguish the blaze. The electron magnesium panels reacted with water and the fire flared up with white hot fury. Fangio saw it all unfold in front of him and somehow managed to make it through this trail of carnage without hitting anything. As he passed clear under the Dunlop Bridge, his hands began to tremble under the rush of adrenaline. The damage was horrific. The exact death toll has never really been declared, but at least 83 people lost their lives and nearly 200 were injured. For Mike Hawthorne, the next lap must have been the most agonizing of his career, and we'll never know exactly what went through his mind in that 13 and a half kilometers. But in any case, when Hawthorne came into the pits and handed the car over to Ivor Buib, he was beside himself and in tears, a completely different man. Now, in the aftermath, the race organizers and the teams themselves were faced with difficult choices. 
And as nightmarish as it was, the collision was isolated to a relatively small area given the 13.5-kilometer course. In fact, most spectators weren't immediately aware of the situation, and there wasn't widespread alarm. But if the race were stopped, it would cause confusion and divert resources. 300,000 people trying to leave at once would quickly clog the roads, preventing ambulances from getting the injured to hospitals. So the authorities decided the race should go on, and no announcements were made. Far into the night, workers attended to the injured and dead. Priests made their way through the impact zone. Temporary morgues were set up, and still the race continued. Through the night, the field began to thin out, but it was still between Mercedes and Jaguar. In the Mercedes pit, as he contemplated how ghoulish this would look in the press, John Fitch went to Rudy Ohlenhout and Alfred Neubauer and urged them to withdraw. Fitch was preaching to the choir, but it wasn't their call. That fell to the board of directors, and it would take time for them to assemble and discuss the situation. Then at midnight, the wire came through from Stuttgart. Retire and come home. Rudy Uhlenhout, the designer of the 300 SLR, went to lofty England in the Jaguar pits to advise him of their decision and ask if Jaguar would follow suit. But England declined, seeing no point in withdrawing at that stage, particularly since the race officials had no plans to end the contest. He would see his task through to the end. Soon after daybreak on Sunday morning, the rains came. The traditional Catholic Mass took place in the infield. And at the cathedral in the town of Le Mans, memorial services began for the victims. Still more cars retired from the race with mechanical trouble, and the day wore on. By that time, news of the tragedy had traveled across the globe. In the end, Mike Hawthorne and Ivor Buib took first place, followed by the factory Aston Martin DB3S of Peter Collins and Paul Frere. Hawthorne wore an exhausted smile and was given champagne to drink, but the photos of that moment were not a good look, and the press savaged him. France's Lotto Journal printed the photo with the biting caption, A votre santé, Monsieur Hawthorne. To your health, Mr. Hawthorne. In the aftermath of the tragedy, racing events were canceled all over Europe. In fact, there were outright bans. Switzerland's ban is still in effect. The American Automobile Association separated itself entirely from motorsport sanctioning. Mercedes-Benz pulled out of factory-sponsored sports car racing and Formula One and stayed out for the next 30 years. And then there was the question of who to blame. Most of the condemnation was focused on Mike Hawthorne who had initially made statements that he was responsible, but which he later dismissed. Some thought it was Lance Macklin's fault, that he wasn't fully committed to racing and therefore was out of his element. And even Pierre Levesque couldn't escape criticism, that he was too old, that the Mercedes was too much for him. But an official board of inquiry concluded months later that it was an accident, and the issue of who was at fault has been debated ever since. Years afterward, while Paul Frere was the European editor for Road and Track, he offered his analysis of the incident, 
Now, Frere had driven the race for Aston Martin. He was behind the leaders all the time, knew all the parties involved, and he'd examined the film and photographic evidence frame by frame. And Frere's conclusion was this. Hawthorne logically passed the slower Macklin and set up to pit. But after the pass, Frere believed that for a split second as he waved Hawthorne past him, Lance Macklin was looking for Levegue in his rearview mirror. And further, that Levegue was doing the same, knowing that Fangio was about to lap him. By the time Macklin's eyes were back on the road, Hawthorne was slowing, surprising Macklin, who then moved left. Now, in the film footage, this move appears imprecise and it was wider than necessary, as if it was a temporary loss of control. And Lance Macklin more or less admitted as much years later. Remember, he fluttered to the right first dropped his tire onto the grass shoulder, and kicked up some dust. Frere's theory continued that as Macklin's Healy was moving wide to the left, Levegue's gaze was transitioning from his rearview mirror back out ahead of him. But it was too late. He could not escape to the left, the speed differential was too great, and he was on Macklin's deck lid in an instant. And there was no longer any hope for recovery. Four cars in a tight space moving well over 100 miles an hour with very little time to read, process, and act on the situation, no matter how professional or experienced they may have been. But more than any other factor, the layout of the circuit contributed to the tragedy. When it was built in 1923, the speeds at Circuit de la Sarte were just a third of what they were in 1955. But little had been done to adjust for this dramatic change. A slight right-hand bend was present approaching the pit straight, and from its entry point, a line could be drawn directly into the lower spectator area. Levegue's Mercedes went airborne at exactly that critical point, where you would draw that line. Levegue's last act before impact, according to Fangio, was to raise his hand as a warning. No doubt he saw exactly where he was going to land, and he knew that many people would die, and the worst is that he could do nothing about it. And at just over three lanes wide through the pits and grandstand, the track was a bottleneck at one of its most densely populated sections. Everyone was well aware of this hazard, and in fact, Alfred Neubauer had made it known to the race officials, and he wasn't the only one. After the tragedy, the entire area was bulldozed and reconfigured to prevent it from happening again. If these elements had perhaps been addressed incrementally over the years as speeds increased, the accident may never have taken place. Certainly the fatalities would have been limited, perhaps to just Pierre Levegue. Lance Macklin left racing later that summer after being involved in another crash. Juan Manuel Fangio was the Formula One world champion for the next three years, driving for Mercedes, Ferrari, and then Maserati. But he never again raced at Le Mans and retired in 1958. Mike Hawthorne became Formula One world champion that same year. But when his friend and Ferrari teammate Peter Collins was killed at the German Grand Prix, he abruptly retired from auto racing. Just a few months later, he was chasing a friend's 300 SL Gullwing down a rain-soaked road when he lost control of his Mark I Jaguar and hit a tree. He was killed instantly. John Fitch was deeply affected by the Le Mans disaster, and although he continued to race, 
he wanted to play a part in improving track safety. One of his inventions, the Fitch Inertial Barrier, is familiar to every driver today. It's that arrangement of oversized barrels filled with sand or water that absorb the impact of a vehicle, and they're now commonplace on highways around the globe. Almost seven decades have passed since the darkest day in motor racing, and everything has changed. Thankfully, that kind of devastation is inconceivable today. But racing will forever be dangerous, because by definition, it happens at the limit, on the balancing point between control and calamity. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. Don't forget to share the show with your friends, and you can drop a few bucks in the gas tank at buymeacoffee.com forward slash hbheritage. I'll see you back here on Wednesday, April 6th, when we'll be talking about some of the coolest minis ever made and some other surprises. So until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.